Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Greetings and welcome to another episode of Canadian History X. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can. Just go to patreon.com slash Canada EHX. You can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month, and every tier has various benefits. We have reached the midway point of the last decade of the 19th century, and for Canada, it would be an interesting and important year that would influence Canada well into the 20th century. So let's look at the year 1895 in Canada. Notable Events In March, Maria Grant would become the first woman in Canada to be elected to any sort of political office. Grant had been born in Quebec City and was active in the Women's Christian Temperance Union. In 1894, she would found the Victoria Local Council of Women, which was the first organization to endorse women's suffrage. In 1895, Grant was elected to the Victoria School Board, where she would serve for six years. The future King George V would meet her when she was presented to the king as the only woman school trustee in Canada. On March 2nd, Theodore Davy, who had been the Premier of British Columbia since 1892, would resign as Premier so he could become the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of British Columbia. Two days later, on March 4th, John Herbert Turner would become the 11th Premier of British Columbia. He had moved to Victoria in 1862 and founded Turner, Beaton & Company, a canning, insurance, and importing company. From 1876 to 1881, he would serve as the Mayor of Victoria and was first elected to the legislature in 1886. He would serve as the Minister of Finance from 1887 to 1895, and his time as Premier would run until 1898. From 1901 to 1915, he would represent British Columbia in England. On March 9th, the Montreal Hockey Club would win their second Stanley Cup by defeating Queen's University 5-1 at the Victoria Rink in Montreal. On April 24th, the Jean-Olivier Chenier Monument would be erected. Standing 14.2 feet tall and made of pink granite, bronze and copper, it honours a physician in Lower Canada. He had commanded the Patriot forces at the Battle of St. Eustache, which I did an episode on several months ago. And when he was trapped in a church with his men, government troops set the building on fire. He left through a window and was shot while screaming, Remember Weir, in reference to George Weir, a spy that had been executed by the Patriots. His corpse was mutilated to intimidate the Patriot supporters. Until 1945, Chenier was excommunicated from the Roman Catholic religion because he fought on holy ground. The Chenier cell of the FLQ was named for him, as we found out in my October Crisis podcast episode only a few days ago. Several streets and buildings are also named for him. The Mossenouve Monument would be unveiled on July 1st in memory of the founder of Montreal, Paul Chamadet de Mossenouve. The statue was unveiled to honour the 250th anniversary of the city of Montreal, which happened in 1892. Also this year, the Chinese Board of Trade would be formed in Vancouver, and Mount Hector in Banff National Park would see its first ascent. The mountain rises 11,135 feet, and it's the 47th highest major peak in Canada. It was named by George Dawson in 1894, after James Hector, a geologist on the Palliser Expedition. I did an episode on the Palliser Expedition several months ago as well. Abbott would pass away the next year at the age of 29, while free-climbing Mount Lefroy near Lake Louise. He would fall to his death and become the first recorded mountaineering fatality in North American history. Faye was also at Mount Lefroy when Abbott lost his life, and he would defend mountain climbing despite moves to ban it in North America. 
1907, he would summit Mount Lefroy and Mount Victoria, and Mount Fay is named for him. In all, he made more than a dozen first ascents in the western Canadian Rockies. Con Smythe Among the notable births this year, there are two I'm going to cover in depth, and the first happened very early in the year with the birth of Con Smythe. Smythe was born in Toronto on February 1st to English immigrants, being the second of the couple's two children. Sadly, his older sister would pass away when he was only eight. His family was poor, and he would move several times during his early life, with the quality of their home depending on how much his father was making at the time. Eventually, his parents would separate and his father would remarry in 1913. Smythe would attend high school at the Upper Canada College, but he disliked it. It was at his next school, the Jarvis Collegiate Institute, that he began to show his athletic abilities, playing rugby, basketball, and hockey, and he played on the city championship teams in hockey and basketball in 1912. In 1916, he would meet his future wife Irene Sands while he was playing in a football game. At the age of 17, Smythe left home to homestead on 150 acres near Cochrane, Ontario. He would build a home only to have it destroyed by fire the next year. So he left and he went to the University of Toronto where he played hockey and captained the school's hockey team to the finals of the 1914 Ontario Hockey Association Championship. The team he lost to was actually coached by Frank J. Selke, someone we talked about a couple years previous. At the outbreak of the First World War, Smythe would enlist with eight of his teammates. Smythe would earn the rank of lieutenant and was sent over to France with his unit in February of 1916. On October 12th, his unit, the 40th Battery, would be hit by shelling, killing both the major and sergeant major of the unit, making Smythe the commanding officer. For the next two months, his unit fought in the trenches at the Somme without relief, and in February 1917, Smythe earned the Military Cross for running into a fight as Germans were throwing grenades and killing three Germans himself and saving several wounded Canadian soldiers. In July 1917, he transferred to the Royal Flying Corps and was shot down by the Germans on October 14th of that year. He would spend the remaining part of the war, despite two escape attempts, in a POW camp. In describing his life at the camp, he would say, We played so damn much bridge that I never played the game again. Upon returning to Toronto, Smythe would start a sand and gravel business that he would own for the next four decades. During that same time, he began coaching the University of Toronto's varsity team, and it was through that he became involved in the NHL. In 1926, Charles Adams, the owner of the Boston Bruins, recommended Smythe to John S. Hammond as the general manager and coach of a new team entering the NHL, the New York Rangers. Smythe put together a team, but he was fired just before the Rangers played their first game. Smythe would return to Toronto, and two years after he was fired from the Rangers, that team won the Stanley Cup, largely thanks to the team Smythe assembled. In 1927, Smythe was given the opportunity to purchase the Toronto St. Pat's for $160,000. Smythe quickly put together a syndicate and invested $10,000 of his own money, finally purchasing the team on Valentine's Day of that year. The first thing he did was change the team's name to the Toronto Maple Leafs. Smythe made himself the general manager and changed the team's colours from green and white to white and blue to represent Canadian skies and snow. Known as the Little Dictator, Smythe would develop feuds with other general managers. Once, when he learned that Art Ross, the general manager of the Boston Bruins, was suffering from hemorrhoids, he sent him flowers with a note written in Latin telling where he could shove the flowers. In 1929, just as the Great Depression was starting, Smythe decided that the team needed a new arena that could seat more people than the current arena. He would raise the money for the construction, which cost $1 million, and work began on June 1, 1931, 
Within five months, the new arena was built, and it was called Maple Leaf Gardens, which became one of the most important and celebrated arenas in the NHL. In 1931-32, Smythe fired Art Duncan as coach and hired Dick Irvin, who would then lead the team to its first Stanley Cup as the Maple Leafs. In 1940, Smythe decided it was time for a new coach, and Hap Day was hired, while Irvin would be hired by the Canadians. Day would lead the Maple Leafs to the Stanley Cup in 1942, 1945, and from 1947 to 1949. Irvin would go on to win three Stanley Cups with the Canadians. When the Second World War began, Smythe would go on to serve in the Canadian Army again, this time as a captain, and he would eventually be sent to England to guard a depot, but was badly wounded by a German bombing attack, leading him to suffer a limp and bowel and urinary tract troubles for the rest of his life. Upon returning home, Smythe found himself in a power struggle for the Maple Leafs with Frank Selke, who would resign and go to the Canadians, leading them to a dynasty in the 1950s. Meanwhile, the Maple Leafs would be mostly mediocre during the 1950s, so Smythe would turn the hockey operations over to Hap Day. But in 1957, Day would resign after he felt Smythe blamed him in the media for the struggles of the Maple Leafs. Smythe would be known for his strict rules on players in a time when players had very little control over their careers. Anyone who didn't follow his rules were traded or sent to the minors. Two players were even sent to the minors when they got married without his permission. Smythe also worked with the owners to bust any unions that the players tried to form. Eventually, Smythe would step down as governor of the team, a position he held since 1927, on February 5, 1962. The same year he resigned, the team would go on to win the Stanley Cup and start a new dynasty. Smythe would sell his shares in the Maple Leaf Gardens in 1966 and resign from the board of directors after Muhammad Ali had a boxing match held at the Gardens. Smythe disliked Ali because he refused to serve in the Vietnam War, and Smythe would later write, The Gardens was founded by men, sportsmen, who fought for their country. It is no place for those who want to evade conscription in their own country. The Gardens was built for many things, but not for picking up things that no one else wanted. Smythe would also oppose the creation of a new Canadian flag and the expansion of the NHL from six teams to 12. Smythe would die in 1978 from a heart attack. While Smythe was known for being a hard man to know, he was also charitable, and he was heavily involved in the Ontario Society for Crippled Children and would finance and build the Ontario Community Centre for the Deaf. Smythe also supervised the construction of the Hockey Hall of Fame and served as its chairman. In 1965, the Conn Smythe Trophy was created by the NHL, given to the MVP of the playoffs. In 1974, the Smythe Division was named for him and would remain in his name until 1992. In 1998, Smythe was inducted into the Ontario Sports Hall of Fame, and he had been inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame in 1958. I'm going to play a clip from As It Happens that aired upon the death of Smythe. As It Happens spoke to Smythe and one of his star defensemen, Babe Pratt, on the Leafs' 50th birthday. We rebroadcast part of that interview now in memory of the Major. Mr. Smythe, I understand there's no party. How come the Leafs today are such cheapskates? Well, I'll tell you. You got one guy eats everything. There's nothing left for anybody else. <laughs> <laughs> Who's doing all the eating these days? Never mind. You take a guess. <laughs> Mr. Smythe, how much did the lease cost you? They cost the, the company $165,000. Sounds like a good buy today. Wasn't bad buy, but and when we only drew 115000 the first year, didn't look so good. So you were a gambling man. Well, I'd gamble on anything that you had anything to do with. <laughs> How much did Babe Pratt cost you? Babe Pratt, whatever he cost, 
They got a biggest bargain in our lives. Mr. Smythe, did you get a particular delight taking players away from the Rangers? No, but I got particular delight selling them some that weren't worth the money. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Smythe, I've heard that you were a bit of a tightwad. Uh, have you ever been out with me? <laughs> well, oh, Barbara, you me if you say I'm a tightwad. Barbara, I don't spend my money. <laughs> I, I, I gotta, I gotta say that that's a fib. Is that right, Mr. Pratt? Yes, sir. I, I'll tell you that nobody treated me, no one ever treated me, in all my uh, 13 years in the National Hockey League, like uh, Major Con Smythe. I'll tell you that uh, that uh, this this is a gentleman that would walk into the dressing room and raise hell with every one of his players and call them whatever he thought they were doing, whatever he thought they were wrong. He'd walk out of that dressing room, and if one fan made one dirty remark about any one of his players, they better be going to the hospital because he'd pop them. I got served the right to say anything he wanted to, but you couldn't. Barbara, I want to say one thing. I've said it to many people. I've never met a man that didn't think I was any good as worth a good, sweet Fanny Adams. John Diefenbaker. The next big name to be born this year was John Diefenbaker, who would go on to become one of our most important prime ministers and politicians during the middle of the 20th century. Born on September 18th in Ontario, he would move with his family to the Northwest Territories in what would one day be Saskatchewan in 1903. Living near Borden, the family then moved to Saskatoon in 1910, and Diefenbaker developed such an interest in politics as a young man that when he was eight, his mother told him he would one day be Prime Minister. In 1910, Prime Minister Wilfrid Laurier was in Saskatoon, and Diefenbaker sold him a newspaper and started talking to him before Diefenbaker said, I cannot waste any more time on you, Prime Minister. I must get back about my work. Of course, this may not have been true. Then there is some evidence that the story was invented by Diefenbaker himself to tell during an election campaign. In 1916, Diefenbaker would enlist with the Canadian Expeditionary Force, but he was sent home in 1917. Diefenbaker said he was hit with a shovel, and that resulted in him being sent home, and not serving overseas. He would then go to the University of Saskatchewan and earn a law degree in 1919. He would open a small practice in Waka, Saskatchewan. In 1920, he was elected to the village council serving a three-year term and starting his political career. In 1924, he moved to Prince Albert and would run in the federal election as a conservative, finishing third. In 1929, he ran in the provincial election for Saskatchewan, but was defeated. Diefenbaker would continue to run his practice in Prince Albert, and he ran for mayor of the city in 1933, losing by only 48 votes. Diefenbaker would mostly focus on his law career and family throughout the 1930s, but in 1940 he would run in the federal election and would finally win a seat in the House of Commons. On June 13, 1940, he would make his first speech in the House of Commons, stating that most Canadians of German origin were loyal, something that was important to him because he was of German heritage and had been called Hun in previous elections. In 1942, Diefenbaker would stand for leadership of the Conservative Party, but would not win. Diefenbaker would again pursue leadership in 1948, this time losing to George Drew. Through the next few years, the Liberal Party would try and dislodge Diefenbaker from his riding in Prince Albert. They would even open a home for unwed Indigenous mothers next door to Diefenbaker's home in the city. While serving in the House of Commons, he would continue to practice law, but he would lose his wife Edna in 1951 to leukemia. He remarried to Olive Palmer in 1953. In 1956, Drew would resign as leader, and Diefenbaker would finally be elected leader, becoming the leader of the official opposition. 
1957, he would lead his party to 112 seats to the Liberal 105, and now found himself as the Prime Minister of Canada. This clip from CBC comes from the campaign in 1958 when Diefenbaker spoke at a rally. I know what unemployment is. They, don't, they can't tell me about that. And I say to those that are out of work that we've acted. We've done that which the United States is now commencing to do. I ask that this. As long as I am Prime Minister of this country, no man or woman is going to be allowed to suffer deficit or no deficit. <laughs> uh, Mr. Pickerskill said the other day, uh, I suppose our defeat did us no harm because the Liberal Party had run out of ideas. <laughs> well, ladies and gentlemen, they ran out of ideas on June the 10th. And if they've made such a tremendous improvement as the parents since in those few months, what will they do if we give them four or five years of opposition further in order to Diefenbaker would get to work putting together a cabinet, appointing Ellen Fairclough as the Secretary of State for Canada, making her the first woman to be appointed to a cabinet post, and Michael Starr as the Minister of Labour, making him the first Ukrainian-Canadian to serve in the cabinet. In 1958, Diefenbaker would call a snap election and would lead his party to a massive majority, winning 208 seats to Liberals' 48, which is still the largest majority based on the percentage of seats in Canadian parliamentary history. This clip comes from his address after he received the largest majority in Canadian history. We will keep your faith, honour our pledges, and give you, to the best of our ability, good government for the benefit of the greatest number of Canadians. The jubilation at Mr. Diefenbaker's victory party defied description. Cheers finally subsided, the Prime Minister restated his political credo. That come to me on this occasion that is, as you say, one that has never been equaled in the history of this country. And I don't regard it as a, a personal victory or as a party victory. I look upon it as a victory of democracy in action, where the men and women of the nation joined together on behalf of that Canadianism, which after all is the desire of all of us. As Prime Minister, Diefenbaker would also appoint the first Indigenous person to the Senate of Canada and grant the right to vote to Indigenous and Inuit people. He held a strong stance against apartheid, but he would also be remembered for the 1959 cancellation of the Avro Aero Project, something that deserves its own episode. His government would also pass the Canadian Bill of Rights while he was Prime Minister. Unfortunately for Diefenbaker, the Conservatives would begin to fracture, and in 1963, he would lose the federal election to Lester B. Pearson and the Liberals. In 1967, a leadership convention was held, and he was forced out as the leader of the party. Nonetheless, he would continue to serve in the House of Commons until August 16, 1979, the day of his death. In all, he had served from 1940 to 1979, 
one of the longest uninterrupted periods in Canadian political history. This is the report from his death when it was announced to the nation. This is a special edition of The World at Six. This is my last campaign. I want to win this election. I want to go back to Ottawa. I have two or three things that I want to do yet, uh, but I, I don't intend to go beyond a further Parliament. I love Parliament. It means everything to me. Uh, but I, I feel that uh, under all the circumstances, if I am successful in this election, that I will not run again. John George Diefenbaker, Member of Parliament and former Prime Minister of Canada, is dead at the age of 83. Mr. Diefenbaker, who led a Conservative government from 1957 to 1963, died of a sudden heart attack at his home in Ottawa this morning. He died an active politician. To no one's surprise, he was re-elected this past spring as MP for the riding of Prince Albert, Saskatchewan. Mr. Diefenbaker was one of the most colorful, controversial figures in Canadian politics. And even his adversaries admit that to follow the chief's career was to watch history in the making. As flags fly at half-mast across the country, reaction to his death continues to pour in. In a message from Buckingham Palace, the Queen said Canada has lost a man of great stature, and she applauded his loyalty to both his country and the Crown. A statement from the White House called him a statesman who served his country with distinction. But the most personal tributes came from his political colleagues and opponents. First, Prime Minister Clark. He was a, a great human force who changed the history of our country and who became a symbol of the resilient strength of the Canadian individual. He has come in later years to be known as a formidable parliamentarian, and he was always that. But he was also our first populist prime minister who reached out to the underprivileged and to the ignored. His government changed the focus of national policy to develop all of the regions of this country and to extend social justice to Canadians in need. He opened our political system and he made it competitive. Internationally, he was a spokesman for the rights of the individual, whether in the Soviet Union or in Africa or here at home. He was undeniably a national figure, yet all of us have personal memories of the man. I am of the generation whose interest in the potential of our country was awakened by his great vision of what this nation could be. Canadians in the millions, whose ancestry was of neither English nor of French, knew him as a symbol of the equal opportunity that exists in Canada. No one who met him could forget him. Since his death, many locations have been named for Diefenbaker, including the largest lake in southern Saskatchewan, a bridge, an airport in Saskatoon, and his home has been designated as a National Historic Site. I've glossed over some things, but I'm also looking at doing a separate podcast, or a series within this podcast, all about Canada's Prime Ministers. Now I'm going to take a break from talking about Canada in 1895 to talk about another podcast. Now, there's a lot of different scripted audio podcasts out there, some good, some bad, but one really good one, one that a lot of people really enjoy, and one that has just launched its second season, is The Mermaid and the Lion. It's a scripted audio drama about two imperfect people who are working on perfecting their love for one another. Now, all relationships aren't created equal, and no one has the right to determine if your situation is toxic, but you. 
staying married forever is almost an anomaly, and those who make it have a very dirty story to tell. Angel and Gaza believe they are on the right path to making it last, but the key to their success is understanding where they've been, what brought them together, and what keeps them in love. Follow them through all of the drama, the sex, the trust issues, the pain, the growth, and the friendship. Learn something about yourself, and learn something about relationships. It's The Mermaid and the Lion, an epic journey to death do us part. It's for mature audiences, and you can find it on all podcast platforms. So check it out. Notable Births On February 15th, Earl Thompson was born in Birch Hills and will one day be Saskatchewan. He would move to California at the age of 8 because the warm weather was better for his mother's health. In 1916, he joined the Air Force and he served in the First World War. In 1920, he would go to the Olympics in Antwerp, Belgium, hoping to represent the United States, but was told he had to represent Canada. He would set a new world record in the 110-meter hurdles, a record that stood until 1931, and he was the first Olympic gold medalist in the 110-meter hurdles from outside the United States. He would go on to become the United States Naval Academy track coach for 36 years, and in 1955, he was one of the first inductees into Canada's Sports Hall of Fame, and he would pass away in 1971. On March 23rd, John Cartwright was born in Toronto. He would earn a law degree from Osgoode Hall Law School in 1912, and in 1914 would enlist in the Canadian Expeditionary Force, serving in the First World War, being wounded twice, and earning the Military Cross. Upon his return, he would go back to practicing law and would be appointed to the Supreme Court of Canada on December 22, 1949. In 1967, he was named the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, serving until March 23, 1970, and he would pass away nine years later in 1979. On May 27, Douglas Campbell was born in Portage-la-Prairie. Working as a farmer and a school teacher in his adult life, he would be elected to the Manitoba Legislature in 1922, winning by 500 votes. In 1936, he would become the Minister of Agriculture, and in 1944, was the Minister of the Manitoba Power Commission, which oversaw the complete electrification of the rural areas of the province, and he also helped create Manitoba Hydro. In 1948, Campbell was elected as the 13th Premier of Manitoba, serving for the next 10 years in that position. He would then spend four years as the Leader of the Opposition before retiring from politics. In 1972, he was awarded the Order of Canada and would pass away at the age of 99 in 1995. On July 7th, Thane Campbell was born in Summerside, Prince Edward Island and would go on to become a lawyer in the province until he ran for the provincial legislature in 1930. He would win and serve until 1943. During that time, he would become the 19th Premier of Prince Edward Island in 1936, serving until 1943. As Premier, he would organize a provincial police force, established the first national park in the province, and committed his province to the war effort. He was also known to be an excellent curler and would go on to be inducted into the Prince Edward Island Curling Hall of Fame and Museum and into the Canadian Curling Hall of Fame. In 1973, he was awarded the Order of Canada and he passed away at the age of 83 in 1978. On September 7th, Pete Parker was born and he would go on to become the world's first complete play-by-play -play radio broadcaster of a hockey game. The broadcast was carried out at CKCK in Regina for a game between the Regina Capitals and the Edmonton Eskimos. This broadcast predated the March 22, 1923 broadcast by Foster Hewitt in Toronto by one week. I used to live in Regina, and when I worked for the newspaper there, I actually went to the building where this broadcast actually happened. It was really cool. On September 20th, Leslie Frost was born in Aurelia, Ontario. 
he would go on to attend law school and then served in the First World War, earning the rank of captain. In 1921, he was called to the bar and would practice law in the province for several years. In 1937, he was elected to the Ontario Legislature and would become the Premier of Ontario in 1949, serving until 1961. During that time, he led Ontario through an economic boom, helping lead the Ontario Conservatives to three majority victories in 1951, 1955, and 1959. His government would expand the role of government, expanding on schools, highways, and hospitals. He would implement the province's first sales tax and introduce health insurance prior to universal health care. Several investments were made during this time as Premier as well, and the educational budget would increase from $13 million to $250 million over the decade. His government also gave voting rights to the Indigenous and updated the Ontario Human Rights Code. He would resign as Premier in 1961, and in 1969 was awarded the Order of Canada and he would pass away on May 4, 1973, at the age of 77. Notable Deaths On April 4, Malcolm Alexander Maclean would pass away at the age of 50. He had been born in Scotland and came to Canada in the 1860s, operating a store in Oshawa, Ontario. He would relocate to Winnipeg in 1878, and then move to Granville, British Columbia in 1885. On May 3, 1886, he would be elected as the first mayor of Vancouver by less than honest means, it seems. He won the election by 17 votes, and it's claimed by some that 100 ballots were cast legally, something that was later confirmed by using the names of hotel guests. The Great Vancouver Fire of 1886 made everyone forget about the scandal, and as mayor, McLean would convince the Governor-General to give the area that would become Stanley Park to the city. In 1886, he ran on a platform of anti-Chinese sentiment and was re-elected, and he would serve until 1887. On September 4th, Antoine Plamondeau would pass away at the age of 91. He had been born in Quebec, and by 22 had travelled to Paris to study art. He would return to Canada in 1830 and begin painting portraits of living subjects, along with religious paintings for churches. For the rest of his life, he would be one of Canada's most notable artists, painting many religious paintings and copies of the old masters. His self-portrait in 1882 would be considered his last work, and he would become a member of the Royal Canadian Academy of Arts, and was notable for pushing for the rights of the indigenous people. On September 11th, Thomas Haviland would pass away at the age of 72. Born in Charlottetown in 1822, he would study law and was called to the bar in 1846, the same year he was elected to the Legislative Assembly of Prince Edward Island. He would serve until 1876. Three years later, he was made the third lieutenant governor of Prince Edward Island, serving until 1884. In 1886, he became the mayor of Charlottetown, serving until 1893, when he resigned due to poor health. I hope you enjoyed that look at Canada in 1895, and if you did, please give a rating and review. You can reach me at craig at canadaehx.ca. You can visit my website, see hundreds of articles on Canada's history, as well as all my podcast episodes. Just go to canadaehx.ca. And again, you can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash canadaehx just like all of these wonderful patrons have. Aaron O'Hara, Robert Dunseith, Todd Casey, Catherine Roa, Luke S., Vic Hedges, J.P. Bear, Jason Hall, Phil Maynard, Spencer M., and Iris Gray. Thanks, and we'll see you again next time.